It is June 27th, 2019, and Judge Cutter and I are interviewing Cynthia Lefebvre. Let me, I just want to start off with, uh, uh, before we started, uh, you said something I want, to, I want to follow up on and just start from there. You said you never wanted to be a woman lawyer. Hmm. What do you mean? To me, I wasn't looking to be a woman lawyer or the best woman lawyer or anything like that. I didn't want to be um, identified as a woman first. I wanted to be identified first as a lawyer. And that's, that was important to me because I felt it was almost segregation. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I know Judge Kretzer was involved in um, the Women's Bar Association, but I never was because I felt like I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't want to have a tag on me. I didn't want to be a woman-owned business. I didn't want to be anything like that. I just wanted to be a lawyer first. Okay, let me go back to this beginning. Um, when, when and where were you born? I was born in Endicott, New York. And yes, I lived there, I believe, for about four or five days. And my parents were being evicted from a house uh, because apparently the people who <coughs> rented it to them didn't own it. So um, while I was in the hospital, uh, my father was packing everything that we owned and putting it into a truck. And when he got to the hospital, he'd forgotten to keep out any clothes for me. So apparently I was taken with just rags around me or something from the hospital. And they crossed the border with police following them, them, apparently, the story goes, because they really didn't have time to deal with, okay, the real story is that we're, we've been asked to leave, but the lady was saying they can't leave who didn't really own the place, and so they just wanted to get out of there. Across the border? What border? Pennsylvania. Oh, I see. So, so did you go from there into Pennsylvania? I guess. <laughs> I don't know where we ended up after that, though. Is that where you grew up? No. I grew up in Boonville, New York. And that's really the name of the place. I know where it is. North of York. Snowmobiles are not recreational vehicles. No. <laughs> transportation. Yes, mm-hmm. they are transportation. I grew up in, in Boonville and we made in, the big in sub- mo- subways or restaurants. Yeah. yeah. If, if, if there even is one, right? <laughs> that's true. Oh, you got me another line. That's great. <laughs> but Boonville, New York is um, where I lived until I was a senior in high school and at that point. Uh, somebody decided that it was a good idea for me to switch schools because they wanted to move, so they moved to Lyons Falls, and I went to a new school district for my senior year. Uh, what did your parents do? Well, my fa- my mother was a 30-year-old widow with five children between the ages of one and nine. My father died when I was eight, and uh, he had been sick for a couple of years, so I was, I was not um, actually put into foster care, but I was legitimately put into foster care because I was given to neighbors to stay while my mother was over in Boston. He was at Mass General. And uh, for long periods of time, I would stay with neighbors. And I remember one house that was a beautiful, I thought it was the most amazing house in the world. It probably would go for 100000 so that, you know, you got to look at it from that point of view. And back then it was probably fifty, but... Uh, it had a formal living room and it had a formal dining room and I was told that I could go into the small sitting room and I was not to go into any other rooms and I got a nickel every day for taking out the garbage and a dime for cleaning the 
the posts on the stairway. And uh, I stayed there for a while. My brothers were with my grandmother and my sister was with another neighbor. So kind of my informal foster. Situation. It was a foster situation. And I think that they were really good people, but there was it was a very cold like there was no communication really with me. Um, but uh, that was before my father died and he he died when I was eight. You did not have it easy growing up. I did not, no. No, it got worse. <laughs> but my mother was a nurse and my father was a biology teacher. Huh. So he'd probably be very unhappy with the grade I got on biology. <laughs> <laughs> so were, were those your major early role models? Uh, not my father, because I don't remember. My I have three memories of my father, because I was like six when mm -hmm. he was taken away to the hospital. Um, I suppose my mother was a role model. She, model. she went to work every day, and mm -hmm. when she came home, she expected dinner to be on the table, and she expected everything to be taken care of, and so that was the role my sister and I took on. And I, I imagine your friends um, were not expected to do that, did not have that sort of a relationship with the mother? Probably not, probably not. But my mother was a, a very good woman, uh, certainly had her faults, but, and, and I don't say that past tense because my mother's alive, um, but it was very difficult for her because she had never written a check before my father died. She didn't understand a lot of it. So she was scared. Five kids between the ages of one and nine. That's a lot of, a lot of responsibility, not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. they, didn't, they weren't paying women nurses very well back then. Even if you are with five kids, you couldn't do it. Yeah. yeah. So you say it went from bad to worse. She got married again. He was a very bad man. And he was very abusive. So that was, you know, that led me to, I can skip right to the age of 14 when I hitchhiked out of town with a drug pusher and a prostitute because I wasn't going to stay there anymore. <laughs> I told you, which story do you want? Do you want the truth? And then where did you end up? You hitchhiked to where? I, I got as far as Utica. And... Uh, Long story, I somehow managed to get out of two very bad situations that night, and I was hitchhiking to Watertown because the cops had come to one of the uh, drug houses that I was at and said they were looking for me um, because they had somehow found that I had left with this woman. And um, so I managed to get back out onto Route 12, and I was, it was winter, and I, it was raining, and I was soaked and I was trying, I said, well, they know I'm here, so if I go the other direction, if I go up to Watertown, they won't find me there. And the first car that pulled over was my mother and my stepfather. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. How does that happen? And then, so th this time you're 14, I, may, I presume you're in high school. I am. Well, <coughs> supposed to be. Supposed to be. Yeah. Um, from there, where would you go to college? I went to Brockport. I applied to one college. It was, to me, it was like, okay, what am I gonna do? I'm not staying here anymore. I can't stand it. So um, I went to Brockport. And to study what? Creative writing. I was working a lot with creative writing. Is that, is that me? 
Um, and um, I Brackport changed my life. Brackport really changed my life. How? I got there and I, w I went into the English department and I said I want to write. And I walked around and they said, well, you need to talk to Stanley Rubin. And so I went to see this guy, Stanley Rubin, and he had a line outside of his office because the, the kids just adored this guy. And so I waited in line and when it was my turn, I went in and he closed the door and he said, okay, tell me about yourself. And I said, I said, I want to write. And he said, I said, tell me about yourself. So I told him about myself and he said, I started and he said, hang on a minute. And he opened the door and he told all the other kids to go home. And he listened to me for a couple of hours and he said, okay, he said, I'm going to read your writing. And he spent so much time with me. He, he would go through my writing and he would work on my writing with me. And he did all kinds of edits and taught me how to, how to write. And well, it was, he must have seen great potential. He was so disappointed when I went to law school. <laughs> he was, he was devastated, but why law school? Um, because a friend of mine was drunk. I was in a bar <coughs> and a friend of yours was drunk. Yeah, that's I was good, in a, that's a good reason to go to law school. I know, but this, this I have lots of friends that were drunk. I, I know, <laughs> I know, but this guy was in a bar and he was a friend of mine. And I said, what is the matter with you, Jay? Cause he was, he was falling down drunk. And he said, I have to take the LSATs tomorrow. And I said, what are those? And he said, law school admission test. And I said, you know, Jay, this is not good. You're not good. You're not going to do well. You, I'm going to take it with you, and I'm going to bet you a picture where I beat you. Well, he's an accountant. <laughs> and what also happened is I was running through my time at Brockport. I ran the Health Fee Boycott. It was a New York State SUNY boycott, and I would go from administration building and take take over all the administration buildings, and um, I was doing all kinds of protests. I was always about regaining power. I didn't know it then. In retrospect, I can look back, and I was, you know, I was looking to get, gain power back, which had been taken away from me, and um, so I don't even know where I was going with that, <laughs> but I was um, running around New York State in my sophomore year. And the health fee was $37.50. And so we, we set up all these protests because it was really going right to New York State, New York City, because they were going bankrupt. And it wasn't going to our health, and it wasn't going to our health services. And we said, if you're going to make us the leaders of the world, you need to tell us the truth. And so I was doing all of this, and it, we won. They uh, repealed the health fee. And... Um, then the vice president of Brockport called me into his office and he said, um, so we have an overseas program. <laughs> I said, well, I haven't applied. And he said, well, we're going to help you do it because they wanted to get rid of me. And they couldn't do it when I was on Dean's List and I was doing well with everything. And I was the editor of the newspaper. And they just wanted to get rid of me because I wasn't doing anything illegal, but it wasn't really reflecting well on them that this Brockport student was sort of going around SUNY and taking all kinds of liberties with things. Agitating. So, ag I was an agitator. I really was. So um, they sent me over to Nottingham for a year. And then when I came back, it took me 
four days to get elected director of communications. So now I had the TV station, the radio station, the newspaper, the penny saver, and the, um, did I say radio? I had all the, I had all the media four days after I came back, so it didn't do him any good. So then my senior year, the president of the college, Al Smith, calls me into his office, and he said, I've never met anybody who should be a lawyer more than you. He said, and I'm on the board of trustees of Syracuse University, and I've already written the letter. And I said, I'm not going to law school. But then my friend gets drunk. I take the LSATs. I do well on the LSATs. I start, it's, you know, a little seed growing in my head. So I did it. And, you know, I didn't apply to another law school either. I, mean, <laughs> I applied to one college and one law school because he wrote a letter. Did you have an idea at that point what type of law you wanted yeah. to practice? I wanted to be in a courtroom. I wanted to be in a courtroom. I wanted to represent people who couldn't represent themselves, who couldn't take care of themselves. Who we're, we're getting back to that empowerment thing, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you recognize it at the time? Um, no, no. I don't think so. I know that I've always been really clear that I don't want to represent rich or poor people. I don't want to represent black or white people. I don't want to represent people that have anything specific. I just want to represent people who need me and have real causes and claims. And that was my agitator side, I think, that I just needed to keep fighting for people. Mm -hmm. For the underdog. Yeah. Because you have been the underdog. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. So you were in law school roughly 1980-ish. 80, I graduated in 81. In 81. 81, okay. Yeah. What was the environment like for, uh, first, first, how many women were in class, you remember? Um, probably a fair number, but yeah, there was a fair number. I think that women back then were probably expected to go into uh, corporate or family law. Um, not many of them were looking at going to into trial practice, negligence, or, and things like that. Family, I understand. Corporate? Why not? Mm, I don't know. Hmm. It was just where they were expected to go. But Mae D'Agostino was one year before me. And so I got to know Mae pretty well in law school. And she really was, to me, um, somebody that I revered. Even in law school? In law school. Oh, she was oh. great, yeah. Hmm. yeah. She won a national award for trial advocacy in law school. Mm -hmm. And we both had uh, Travis Lewin as our um, teacher for trial practice, and he was amazing. What was the reaction of your family when you decided to go to law school? Um, I can't say they were surprised. I can't. I, I mean... Were they opposed? I, uh, or supportive? Or indifferent? I don't know that... Uh, I think that I was so independent by that point that they just sort of said, she's going to do what she's going to do. <laughs> and you I kind of resigned yourself to the tornado, right? And yeah, you, yeah. You know. So then you get out in 81, you said, right? Yes. And um, were you interested in working with any of the big firms? Or, uh, oh, wait, let's back up. How, why Albany? How did you get to Albany? <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Um, well, I was going to marry this guy who I was going to marry because I was trying to get away from this other relationship. So, <laughs> And presumably not the drunk count. No, okay. no. So uh, he got a job here. And um, so I 
got a hold of May and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to Albany. Because I told him, wherever you get a job, I'll get a job. Because I, I had that kind of confidence. Mm-hmm. I, I can get a job. It's not a big deal. And so she said, oh, send me your resume, and uh, uh, I'll give it to um, Mr. Jones at Maynard O'Connor and Smith. So I got a job at Maynard O'Connor and Smith. Doing what? What, what kind of law? Um, defense, medical malpractice defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that all they did? They they did negligence defense, mm-hmm. but it was all defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I worked for Mr. Murray and and uh, Roger Cusick and um, Mr. Jones. They were my bosses. Mm-hmm. And then uh, how long were you there? Eight months. And why did you leave? <laughs> Let's back up. Um, at Maynard O'Connor and Smith at that time, um, were you and May the only females there? Mm, I think so. May was probably the first, and certainly the first partner. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we were the only women. I'm pretty sure we were. How were you treated? Um, good. Except I was not paid worth of crap, and I... Uh, didn't really have an office. I mean, at one point, May, Tom Daly, and myself shared an office. Cause, but it, it wasn't because I was a woman. It was because they were totally out of space, and they didn't really... They were a little bit tight with the money, shall we say. I was over in 90 state at the time. Do you remember your starting salary? $12,500. Yeah. yeah. I will never forget that. That was... I was making more when I was working at the paper mill and I, you know, I worked, I was a bartender. I worked at the paper mill. I worked as a grocery store clerk. I had all kinds of jobs when I was growing up. So, um, so you leave Mayor Connor and Smith because they're, you can't make any money. No, I, I left there because somebody offered to double my salary. And where, where was that? I was arguing in front of Judge Khan, and I had five motions for summary judgment and I won them all. And I did a pretty good job on the arguments. And this guy stops me and says, do you want to have a cup of coffee? And I said, no. And he said, well, I want to talk to you about a job. And I said, well, I have a job. And he said, well, I'm going to double your salary. And I said, let's have coffee. (laughs) So it was Steve Spring. And he was uh, house counsel to Aetna at the time. So he hired me and he gave me $24,000 a year, which was a big bump, Mm -hmm. a really big bump. 100% bump, yeah. 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 And then uh, how long were you with Aetna? Three and a half years. And so that was uh, uh, defense. What, what sort of defense work? Um, mostly yeah. I was doing auto, um, personal lines. I would do uh, slip and falls. I wasn't doing any med mail at that point. But I was doing a lot of whatever uh, homeowners policies would cover and, and auto policies. So you're in, you're in court pretty early in your career, really. Uh, I argued in the appellate division the day I was admitted. Wow. Yeah, because Maynard O'Connor had me ready to go that day. They, and I went up and I argued in the appellate division that day. But I was, when I was with Aetna, they had a pretty much no-pay policy. So I was in court so everything gets tried. all the time. All the time. I had no idea what I was doing and uh, didn't matter. Just went and did it and so who, taught who, me a lot. Who were your contemporaries in the trial bar, your, your female contemporaries in the trial bar? And like, I guess we're talking mid-80s. Wow, there's a question. I mean, it was May, me, uh, Maureen Bonani. Um, 
who else was out there? Well, Susanna Martin, Chris Hummel, and I, um, we studied for the bar together. And I was, I came from Syracuse, somehow got hooked up with those guys. Yeah, yeah, and we studied for the bar together. Um, So there were a lot of women, but they were all in defense firms. And I was too. I was too. What do you make of that? Coincidence or something else? No. As a plaintiff's attorney, you have to have some kind of... Uh, you have to be able to create business. You have to be able to make the business. As a defense attorney, you don't necessarily have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So as a defense attorney, I certainly, whatever I was trying for them, I was not bringing in the cases. But I, I think it was a very chauvinistic system because I knew I could never go out and go to work for a firm and become an immediate trial lawyer like I did when I went to Aetna. Mm-hmm. They would never have let me do that. It would it would just, just have been impossible. Because you were too new or because you were a woman? Or both? Both. And uh, it's not probably how I would recommend learning, but at least that was they were defense cases, so... Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel better about the fact they were defense cases. But I, I did pretty good. I did pretty good, so. And then, did you say three and a half years? That yep. Was? And then work. Well, Aetna had this policy that we could practice on the side. Big mistake. Big mistake. So I built a practice. And I left with, um, I left Aetna with uh, one of the guys that I was working with. And we rented space on Broadway. It was beautiful space. It was in the Stillmaker Roach building. It was gorgeous. Um, and we hired an, uh, an associate, and we bought a $25,000 computer. That's how much that cost <laughs> at that point. And we took out a loan for it, and we did um, every, everything that we had to do. And the next week, the guy comes in and says, I can't do this. I have to have a paycheck. Well, didn't you think about that before? You know, so he left, and um, it was it was all on me then. I had an associate I had to pay. I mean, that's crazy, that's insane. I had to pay the rent. I had to pay the the insurance. I had to I had to make sure everything got paid. So, and you know, he just walked out. He left. I never got a penny from him, and I never tried because I figured, well, okay, I'm just gonna do it then. And I was tied to a number of things at that point that I had cost a lot of money so it was a little bit crazy but you know what it was very brave is what it was well but you know what i i just did it i mean at that point what are you gonna do and you know i was i was going into town courts i was doing night stuff i was doing matrimonials i was doing whatever i could get any anybody that would pay me a dollar i was getting the dollars and i rented out rooms in my house because i had bought a house um I was getting petitions signed, and this guy comes to the door of this one house around the corner from this house I was living in, because I have horses, so I was out in the country. And uh, I said, uh, can you sign this petition for me? I won't tell you what party. And uh, so I handed him the petition, and he said, I'm not going to be one of your lo- loyal you know, party members anymore. I said, why? And I, I actually said to him, are, are you going to be a Republican? 
<laughs> so I have given it away. But um, he said, no, um, my partner and I are breaking up. And uh, I said, what are you going to do with the house? And he said, well, I'm going to sell it to you. And I said, well, do you mind if I look at it? And so I walked through it, and the next day he told me he'd sell it to me for 65000 and I convinced him sixty was a better number. So I bought the house for 60000 So here I am with a house. I, I ran for town judge a lot because I needed the salary to make sure my business was going to be able to float. So I had my... How, how difficult was it to build a practice as um, a woman lawyer in this time? Um... You know, I don't think it was that hard. The first guy I ever represented for Aetna hired me as his, as his consul. He owned a business, a plumbing business, and he then had me do all of his work in it. And it, when you're in the trades, they talk to each other. So I got a lot of trade work. You know, and then they gave me their divorces because they're always getting divorced too. And you know, I did all of that. And so I was building a business, but. So I, I rented house, uh, you know, rented out rooms in my house. Three guys had each had a bedroom, and uh, I was getting rent for that. And I had my salary as a judge, and just hoping so I was going to float. What year was that? Eighty four. I'm trying to think. Uh, Madonna. Stahl, and uh, Greta Powers had a women practice. You you were one of maybe two, three at max yeah. for women. They were doing woman they were doing matrimonials, right? Right. Yeah. 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 So at this point are, are you um concentrating on PI work or what? Or, or, or I or wanted you I wanted to be. But I was doing whatever I could get. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just did whatever I could get. Anybody that paid me I would I would do what they wanted. I'd learn it. And I really wanted to be doing PI work. So in 1989, I got my first million dollar verdict and the next day I went back to the office and I said, we're gonna close out all the files except the PI. <laughs> I'm done, I'm done. And that from that day forward, I've only done PI work. So you must have been the first woman owned PI firm in town, right? I'm sure, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. You were, yeah. no question. No, yeah. um, how were you treated in court? Were any judges particularly uh, supportive and particularly unsupportive um, of a woman in the courtroom? I don't know that I had a particularly hard time with any of the judges. They were pretty good to me. And I was always prepared. Mm-hmm. And to a judge, I think it's really important that somebody comes in prepared. And I was a little bit of a firecracker. I mean, I, you know, I'd argue and, mm-hmm. and argue and argue. And I, I think maybe they didn't want to take you on. <laughs> you are a firecracker. They, yeah. they just let me do my thing. And, you know, yeah. judge, uh, some of the judges were really supportive. They thought it was great. They wanted women, they wanted to see women succeed and they wanted to see me succeed. So mm-hmm. it was, it was great. So there weren't any real gender diversity issues in, in court or in the courtroom? Uh, more with the lawyers. What do you mean? Um, I'd walk into deposition after deposition, and they'd say, you can set up there. Mm-hmm. Right. I was always the steno. Right. They, you know, I was in a courtroom a year ago in Orange County, and I came in, and I was trying the case with a guy from 
um, Ithaca, and he is a good friend of mine, but we were going to jointly try the case, and I introduced myself to the defense attorney, and the defense attorney said, I only talk to trial counsel. And I was like, really? And, you know, I'm so glad I whooped his butt, because I did. Mm. And um, after we tried the whole case, he couldn't stop talking to me. But, um, you know, I think more the lawyers than the judges. The judges were pretty supportive, and they could see, you know, as a judge, you know what lawyers are doing. You know who's doing their homework and who's mm -hmm. not, mm -hmm. and who's, who's there always going to tell you the truth yes exactly. you know and this is what I teach my students at law school yeah yeah uh, I mean they were I would say I was getting more support from judges than I'd walk into depositions and they'd try to push me around well that wouldn't last long <laughs> I, I wasn't going to have that and you know more the lawyers than the than the judges because there weren't a lot of women lawyers doing plaintiff's work anyway back then right it really weren't. What yeah, about private clubs? Um, May mentioned that a lot of business was done at private clubs, and of course she wasn't able to join in that. Yeah, and Judge. You have that problem. Judge Pryor asked me to join the was it the University Club? Yeah. Yeah. And I said why, and he goes because we need some women, <laughs> and so. You remember Judge Pryor used to smoke in his chambers? Oh, in the yeah. world? Oh. Yeah. It was like you'd walk out of there and you'd just be covered oh, in smoke. But so I joined the university club and I hated it. I hated it. I, I, I couldn't get out of there fast enough because it was just not my thing at all. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm a rough rider. I'm not a, I wasn't born with any silver spoons. All right. For, for example, at the Jones firm, uh, they belong to private clubs or a private club, and uh, a lot of business was done there. You didn't have that option in yeah. those days. No. And the, even... The Jones firm or, or Maynard O'Connor? Maynard O'Connor, yeah. 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 yeah, see, even after I joined the university club because I was asked to, I was not included. Yeah. I was absolutely not included. I believe it. And, you know, the Fort Orange Club was as sealed up as it could oh, be. absolutely not. And, you know... They smuggled me in the back door. But you see, my kids. clients wouldn't have come from a place like that anyway. <clears throat> my clients <clears throat> are Joe Blow on the street. No. You know, I'm, I'm a plaintiff's attorney. I don't, need to, I don't need to talk to anybody who owns an insurance company or is some kind of big claims manager. All I need is for the people who need me to know I'm here. So it was, to me, I didn't care. And I hated those clubs. I thought they were terrible. I'd go home, get on my horse, and take a little ride through the woods. <laughs> so it seems to be two things about getting into um, plaintiff's work and PI work. One, you wanted to do it. And two, to be successful, maybe you had to do it. I mean, yeah. Well, to be really successful. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, to, to get to the point where I was actually successful. Because that's a big word. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can... You can make it through the year and say, wow, I, you know, I made a little bit more than I made it at now. Or you can make it through the year and say, I think I did okay. Mm -hmm. You know? And when... And okay for you was a hundred million dollar <laughs> verdict <laughs> at one point. Only 94.5. And she Which, stays in touch with me. Right. I talk to her all the time. So I, I think you are responsible for 
certainly the largest at the time, maybe the largest ever. But it very, was very close to a hundred million dollar verdict. What was that case? Here, um, that case was the highest personal injury verdict in the United States that year. Hmm. And it was published as that, and that surprised me because I didn't know that that's. But it was published in the um, one of the big reporters. You would think I would know this, right? <laughs> um, but what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm sorry, I'm talking to my dog. Okay. I forgot I was on. You can edit, right? <laughs> They're going to say, what happened then? <laughs> um, so, what was the question? Um, the hundred million dollar verdict well, uh, what, okay that when and what was it early 90s i think mid 90s um hmm maybe mid 90s huh mm -hmm. i think something like that i think i think i have an article out there about it but um uh, you might have you might <laughs> yeah. have yeah. truthfully you i think you did because you wrote a few on me yeah. I, I remember that. I, they, when I was elected judge, I think you wrote some, too. I don't remember that. Because I, I was supposedly the youngest lawyer judge in New York State at oh, the time. Oh. Because I was, uh, I, I had come out of law school, and I was with Aetna, so I was only like two years in practice. So it's pretty, and I was a young, like I was on the young side of the kids graduating every year. So... I was told, and it gained its notoriety that I was the youngest lawyer judge in New York State. Talk and about how not old were you? I think I was um, like twenty six, twenty five, twenty six, something like that. When you graduate from Chris Hummel was also quite young when he was elected to East Greenbush. He yeah, was one of Yeah, yeah. I think he was after me. Yeah. yeah. But so anyhow, this hundred million dollar verdict. What's, yeah, what, you what's keep the case? going back to that. What, 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 what's, what's the case? Oh, it's a horrible case. Um, in quick nutshell. Uh, I, I remember what it is. Yeah, that. the the client was a very um, powerful woman, and I have undying respect for her because her father had been raping her since she was about four years old. He was a colony cop, and he was constantly abusing her. He would come home and he would take his gun out of his, um, out of the, his belt and he would spin it on his, he built this little, I don't know, shrine to himself and he'd keep the gun there facing everybody and say, now we're all gonna do what dad says tonight. And uh, he continued to rape her for years and she came to me and said, I need I need to do this. And I said, well, you can, you can be Jane Doe and nobody will know who you are. And she goes, no, I am going to speak out loud. And when, oh. when the verdict came in, I told her, you don't have to, you know, the press was all there and everything. And I said, you don't have to go on camera. She goes, oh, I'm going on camera. And she, she was a very powerful um, person and her, father um he was always going from state to state because i kept moving the judgment from state to state and taking some of his money we'd get fifty dollars a hundred dollars i didn't care i was going to make his life miserable and i just kept following him around and we just kept getting what we could out of him so we're back to where this all started with empowering powerless people mm -hmm. right? yeah big time yep yep Yep. Mm -hmm.
I didn't make any money on that case. <laughs> I'm not surprised that that was not a collectible verdict. But. And you've always been active in the community as well. Um, uh, Albany County Bar Association, State Bar, Academy of Trial Lawyers. I know you've written and in, in lectured a lot. Uh, you were town judge, of course, as you mentioned. You've been very active in the Humane Society. Do you think it's especially important to a woman lawyer to network? I think it's. I think it's. I think, game, it's I think it's especially important to anyone that life has been good to you to give back. I think it's really important to do that. Um, I do it in a, a multitude of ways. I I was at a throughway stop the other day. There was this very very sick old man who was wiping the tables, and I could tell that he was he was coughing, and he just didn't look very good, and I. I literally handed him a $100 bill and said, you know, a guy like you working in this kind of condition, you should have a tip. And he, I thought he was going to cry because mm -hmm. it was obvious he needed the money really bad. And, you know, I, I think you have to give back. And whether that's supporting a party in politics or whether that's supporting the animals at the Humane Society or whether that's supporting um, young lawyers as they're learning to be lawyers, you have to do it. It's... It isn't right not to, because if life's been good to you, you need to pass that on. Yeah. That's really important to do. Is the environment and the climate change for women since uh, you began practicing? Yes. Was there a turning point or just kind of evolutionary? Um, th there are a lot of very, very powerful, very, very good female lawyers out there now. I don't think when I started and when you started, I don't think there were. I don't think that they had managed to climb out, no. and and not up here, sir. No, no, and you know now look at it. There's Nor were there I go into judges. I would always judges. go into depositions, and it would always be me and the guys, me and the guys, me yeah. and the guys. Now, it's all women. Okay. I walk in, and it's women, 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 and the the climate has changed because there's very clearly respect for anybody who is doing a really good job. And I think that the gender thing has become something in the back seat. It's not, it's not up front anymore. It's not, wow, she's a great female lawyer, you know? It's, it's, she knows what she's doing. And that's, that's a big deal. It's a big deal because it was, it was always harder as a woman. It was always harder as a woman. But, you had to ignore it, because if you didn't, you're doing a disservice to yourself. So when they said I could set up, I'd say, oh, I will. <laughs> you know, it, and it still happens. It still happens. They say, you want to set up there? And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And it's certainly not around here, because no, everybody I here. I can't imagine. They everybody, know you. They, yeah. everybody knows me. Um, but, you know, if I go, I, I cover... I was covering 26 counties, and now I think I'm covering more than that. So if I go someplace where people don't know me, and I walk in, uh, and they do something like that, I just know they're, they they may have a little uh, moment before they realize that I'm not the stenographer, but they're going to realize it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not downplaying court reporters. I think that's one of the hardest jobs you can it have. Is. Yeah. That is an incredible, especially if you're doing me because I talk too fast. And, you know, I, my court reporter is one of my best friends because I just love her. She does a great job and, you know, but I'm sick of being taken 
to be the court reporter. I can also see the other side of it, particularly in a certain era where 18 out of 20 times a woman who's in there is a court reporter. Mm -hmm. you know, so you, you would, it would be expected. You know, I, may, I imagine that sometimes it was meant to be demeaning, other times it was probably just an honest mistake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, are there any special challenges to a, a woman uh, to, in balancing both career and personal family life? Well, I have two children, and they are my heart and soul. They are my babies, my, my best buddies, my everything. And when I had my daughter, uh, she was born in 1988, and it was a crash C-section. And I very reasonably was back at work within three and a half weeks. Um, my son was only an emergency C-section, which is a step down, and I got to work within two and a half weeks. But I would take my kids to work with me. It's like I take my dogs to work with me. I, I would have my babies there, and um, then I had the world's absolute best nanny. She didn't live with us, which was great. I got to be a mom. I got to take because uh, I was a single mom for a long time. Um, I got to take really the best of all of it because I had a nanny who was so beautifully great with my kids and she'd take care of them during the day and then I'd be able to be mom at night and it was great and I my kids are great so what do you want the coming generations to know about what it was like back in the day and, and what what their obligations are going forward the world is a changing place and all of us are given the opportunity to make those changes good or bad. And you have to take on that responsibility, especially if you're going to do things that are going to affect other people. So what they need to know is don't ever be stuck in the status quo. Realize that you can change the world and do it. Just do it.